Uh, I think in order to really grip and get gripped by what's going on here and what James is trying to convey to us, I think it's really, really important that what we do is we understand kind of a little bit of the background to the book and why it is that he's writing. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the one that wrote this book. And by half-brother, I mean that he and Jesus shared the same mom, not the same dad. And how many of you know that makes all the difference in the world? And uh, what we find is that James, from what we can tell from the scriptures, is James didn't trust in Christ. He didn't believe that he was the Messiah while Jesus was alive. But according to church tradition and what we can piece together from other books of the Bible, he does come to faith in Christ, and many believe it was because he was one of the 500 that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And so after Jesus appears to him, he comes to faith and believe in him as Messiah, as his Lord, as his Savior, and he begins to pastor First Baptist Church Jerusalem, all right? Of all the churches, what a better church to pastor at. And so he preaches there. But during his pastorate, there's some pretty serious persecution that arises, even greater than what they're experiencing there in Ethiopia. If you are, at least in a widespread type way, and what we find is, is, is they've come to faith in, in Christ just as being a believer, stating that you're a disciple of Jesus or by being baptized and openly professing that. Uh, many of them were losing their jobs. Many of them were um, not only losing jobs, but many of them were actually um, finding themselves um, um, being thrown in prison. They were losing their freedoms. And many of them were also losing their lives. They were being sewn up into animal skins, and they were being throwed, thrown to the wild animals. And so this is really what was going on while he's writing these things. And so what happens is they, they, they flee, they, they disperse, and they disperse throughout this whole region called Asia Minor. And so the pastor, he, he loves them, and he cares for them, and he, his heart yearns for them, and he wants to know how they're doing. And so he sends out kind of feelers and words to try to find out what's been happening in the hearts of the lives of them. And so when he begins to hear word back, he becomes increasingly more concerned. And the reason for that is because many of those that he has taught, many of those that he's broken bread with, many of those that he's personally discipled, are not living as true believers in Jesus Christ. They're not living in obedience to what the Word of God has been taught them, and he's concerned. Now, I have to admit that that's not just for that pastor 2,000 years ago. I believe that's for every pastor who seeks to glorify God. Every pastor who's looking after your soul, who has a concern for your soul. For me, many times I hear things, see things, and are told things that disturb my heart. That we come together in the house of God and we worship together and everybody seems to be kind of worship, seems to be on the same page and then there are many who go out and they make decisions and they do things that are directly contrary to the word of God and for every pastor that breaks his heart. And he's concerned for that. So what does a pastor ought to do? Well, James decided that he was gonna write a letter. And so that's what he did. He, he wrote this letter. They had no way to be able to pick up a phone and call people or, or go to where they were. He had to stay there in Jerusalem. And so he sends this letter out. And in the letter, what he's doing, is he's giving a letter that basically just gives a clear picture of what practical Christianity looks like lived out on a regular, everyday basis. Hey, you want to know what a Christian looks like? Here it is. Live this out. But in here as well, what he's actually doing is he actually gives us a series of tests. And in these series of tests, they're meant for you and I to take these tests to determine whether you and I are really in the faith or not. 
whether you and I just say that we're believers, are we truly believers because of a transformed life by the power of God and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit? And so he gives these tests. And this is not the first test here in verse 13. It's, it's probably the second or maybe even third test. But here, here's, here's the test that he ultimately gives. He says, every true born-again believer owns something. They own something. What do they own? WWJD bracelet? Bible? What do they own? They own responsibility. And specifically, they own responsibility for their own sin. They don't blame it on other people. They're not a victim of anyone or anything. They are simply what? They simply sit back and say, hey, listen, this sin is mine. And apparently, where James is writing, the people there had a problem with this. Because not only are they doing the wrong thing, but when he approaches them and he confronts them about their sin, they all have excuses of why they're doing what they're doing. And folks, that's the kind of world we live in, is it not? Nobody takes responsibility. They may admit, hey, I did this, but really it's not my fault that I'm ultimately made to do this. I know right before I left, um, I was listening on the news, and there was a congresswoman who was talking, and she was defending two boys that had committed uh, a felony. Supposedly they had gone in, and they had robbed by gunpoint um, a store, kind of a jiffy store type thing, and they were caught, and they were sentenced, and, and, you know, and basically said, you know, two felons caught, you know, sentenced to 15 years, whatever it is. And she gets up, and she starts to defend them, and says, we should not label them as felons. We should not label them as felons. Once you get that label as a felon, then you'll always be a felon for the rest of your life. They're just misunderstood. See, and what they really need to do is they're really a victim. It's not their fault. See, what they need is what happened was the system failed them. They were born poor. Their children didn't make, or their parents didn't make a lot of money. Uh, they didn't get to go to the good schools. Their teachers failed them. Their pastors failed them. Where's the church in all of this? Where was, where was the community in all of this? You know, if we, would have just given, if we had just given them more money, then they wouldn't have had to go and to be able to fight. They had no choice but to rob that place. Well, have you ever wanted to rip your radio out of the car and throw it out the window? You got so mad. I mean, just mad driving. I don't mean mad by people that are driving around you, but you're just mad by what you're hearing. And I remember sitting there just going, what are you talking about? And of course, I, I, think, I, I think I knew at that moment she couldn't talk back. But at that point, I said, what are you talking about? The reason they're calling them a felony is because they're felons, right? That's the very definition of a felon, right? Is that they commit felonies. And I'm like, yes, they had a choice. Of course they had a choice. They didn't have to pick up a gun and go into a store and rob them. You know what they could have done? How about this? How about getting a job, right? Are you with me a little bit on that? Hey, I don't know, but there is this thing called working for food. You you guys with me with that? So there is an option. But here's the troubling thing to me. The troubling thing to me is that we see this in our own culture all the time, but where I see it purposely and most, most, most um, uh, critically and concerning is within and amongst God's people. I'm sinning. I know that I'm doing the wrong thing, but I'm only doing this because I was forced in this position. He is to blame. She is to blame. They are to blame. That's why I'm doing what I'm ultimately doing. But here's the idea. I don't want you to think by any stretch of the imagination that this is new with our culture. Nor was it new 2,000 years ago with James's culture. The truth of the matter is passing the buck and putting blame on other people has existed as far as the first man and the first woman. Back in the book of Genesis, we see this very clearly. And there God says, listen to this. How would you like this? God gives you one rule. 
Wouldn't you love one rule? Young people. Isn't that great? Like at our house, unfortunately, we've got like 50,000 rules. God had one. Who's off here? Right? Right? We've got... Uh, they're looking. They're like, that's right. We've got a lot of rules. Be more like God. All right? And so we've got... He has one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat of that tree. Here's a thousand, ten thousand trees for you. Eat. Eat until you're, you know, blue in the face. Just eat to your heart's content, but just don't eat the one tree. And what do they do? Eat of the one tree, right? And so what's interesting, you say, well, why in the world would they do? I would never. Yes, you would. Just stop and think about it. I don't ever really care to walk on grass, but once they put a sign, do not walk on grass, it's mine, right? Uh, you know, I never, I don't want to walk in the grass, pesticides and dirt and worms and everything else, but when they put it on, there's just a part of me that wants to step on it, Right? And I'd like to walk through that grass and be on it just for a little bit. But here's the idea. is they do, now, they get caught. What happens when they get caught? Do they sit there and say, God, man, we are so wrong. We have done wrong things. I wasn't the leader of my home, and I led in the wrong direction. And the, and the wife, no, listen, I wore the pants. She didn't say I wore the pants, and I took, uh, I took leadership of her home, and, and I, submitted, I should have submitted to him. That's not what she says. He comes, and Adam says, guess what? Says, hey, listen, you know the woman you gave me? Um... It's her fault. So he's blaming the woman, but even more so, who's he blaming? God, right? The woman you gave me. And then she turns and we think, hey, man, come on, women. All right, woman power. She turns and she says, well, the serpent did it. So they're in this whole process of what? Passing the buck. They're not taking the responsibility that they should. So the question that arises that James wants to answer, then who's, whose fault is it? It's, it's funny. It's nobody did it. You ever do that in your house? Hey, who took the toothpaste and smeared it all over the wall, right? Who did it? Not me, not me, not me, not me, not me. Well, apparently, it was either me or your mother, right? One of the ones that did it. It's there, but nobody did it, right, right? And so what happens is oftentimes we, 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 we make excuses, we push it off. So whose fault is all of this sin and falling to temptation? And, the, and, and James is very clear. He goes, I'll tell you who it's not. It's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. He says in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, my question is, why doesn't he make a huge defense for all the other people and the places and the things that we blame? Why doesn't he sit there and say, hey, listen, it's not your parents' fault. Don't blame it on your parents, or it's not your spouse's fault. Don't blame it on your parents, or it's not your situation and where you were born and how much money you make, or your boss's fault. It's not any of those faults. Why doesn't he make an argument for that? He doesn't make an argument because he believes in a sovereign God, God, that God is in control of all things. And because God is in control of all things, no matter what we blame or who we blame, anything we blame or who we blame ultimately goes back to a sovereign ruling God over all things. So he, he sums all of our things up and he says, no matter what you blame, you're ultimately blaming God. And he says, he says here that it, to blame God is both ridiculous and it's impossible. He tells us why it's impossible for God to tempt us for sin. He says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And we're going to talk about this in just a minute, but the reason he can't be tempted with evil is because he's perfectly holy. There is no sin inside of him. There's no appetite for sin. There's no lust within God's heart that makes sin attracted. In fact, because he's holy, he's repulsed by everything that you and I might be attracted to. So he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. It disgusts him. He's at enmity with it. He's an enemy of evil and sin. So he can't be attracted to it. But notice this. The Bible also says, um, and he himself tempts no one. 
So here's the idea. What he's trying to get at is, listen, if he has nothing to do with sin, wants nothing to do with sin, if he hates it, then why would he come in, in, to, to the people that he loves and try to get them to do something that he hates? If he did that, he would be the author of sin, and he would be in sin, but there is no sin in God, so he cannot tempt. Do you see the logical thinking here? Now, what we know from the Word of God is this, is that God does test us. And testing and tempting oftentimes look exactly alike, do do they not? But the difference is the motivation, the motivation of what outcome you ultimately want it to be. God, he he, 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 he tests us, Satan tempts us, and again, it looks alike. Think of Job just for a minute. Here's Job, and God says to Satan, as he comes to, uh, to, to God, and he says, hey, listen, he says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none as righteous as he is. But that's a pretty big saying, right? And so he says, he says, and the devil comes to him, and he tells him, he says, yeah, he's righteous, and he loves you, but it's only because of the good things you give him. If you take everything away from him, he'll curse you to your face. He'll abandon you. And the big question of Job is, will God serve man for nothing? Will you serve him for nothing or only for what he can do for you? And so here they find themselves in this particular idea. And what happens? Everything is taken away from him. His family is taken away except for his disgruntled, mean wife. You know, you know the devil's at work here, right? It takes, about, it takes everyone dies except for the mean wife, right? And so he takes away his job. He takes away all his money. He takes away uh, everything that he cares for is basically wiped out. And again, what was the purpose? Was God's purpose to try to get him to sin, to abandon him? No. God wanted to test his faith to drive him into God and to love God and rely on him and to entrust in him and to make God his all and all. And fortunately, he passed that test and he does do all those things and God restores him. But do you see the difference between the two? God does test, but he can never, will never, and can never tempt us to sin. So the question then for us is, then, then, then who is to blame? Can we blame the devil? We see the devil at work here, but apparently we can't even blame the devil. Look at verse 14. He says, and he's going to tell us who we can blame, but each person, who's involved with each person? Who does that include? Everyone. But each person is tempted when, here's your answer, he is Lord and enticed by his own desire. The reason you sin and the reason I sin is not because there is an outward object or thing compulsing me and pushing me and making me do the right thing. The compulsion comes inwardly. There's something that resides within me that causes me to do that which is wrong. The reason that I get angry and lose my cool is because inwardly there is a lust and there is a desire for power and to get my way. That, that's, that, that's, it's not because of what somebody else did for me. There's something in me that's off. There's sin. There's lust inside of me. There's desire. That's what he's referring to there. The Bible calls it the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That sin that dwells within me is what causes that temptation to look attractive and me to act on. Now, he gives us an illustration. He says, both from fishing and from, and from um, um, hunting, he says he is, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word lured there, lured, has to do with fishing, right? You know, you put a, a, a lure, a fishing lure on there. And the whole idea is you want to get the prettiest little lure that you can or bait on that thing so the fish will sit there and go, hey, I can't resist that. That's awesome, right? Because when you go, you don't usually just go with hooks. That's why we have bait shops, yes? So when you 
put the hook out. Now, this is, this is how it works for me. I don't go fishing just with a hook. Plop it out there, put it into the water, because usually fish aren't like, hey, there's this sharp, shiny object. I'm going to stick it and impale myself with it. That's not usually what happens, right? Usually what happens is they're hiding. And they're just kind of back, and they're under a boat, or they're under a tree, or they're under a, a lily pad or something, and that's their safety in there. My job is to lure them out of their safety. So I take a nice, big, juicy worm, right? Big, juicy worm, big night call. Whoa, that's a big one. You pull it out, and you, then you harpoon it, and then you harpoon it again, and then you harpoon it again. And this is so funny. My dad and grandpa used to always say, it doesn't hurt it, don't worry about it. Just put it on the hook and everything. And I'm just kind of like as a kid, you know, well, is it squirming like that because I'm tickling it? Is that why it's squirming? It's trying to get away? It's ticklish? I, I think it is hurting it. So you put it on there, you throw it out, you plop it in front of them, and all of a sudden something inside of that fish sees and smells that worm and he, in the appetite that rests within him, begins to grow and begins to grow and begins to grow. And he can't help himself. And he begins to get drawn to this. And, and as he sees it, what does he do? Eventually, he can't take it anymore. And this is what's going on in the fish mine, all right? He's sitting there going, okay? And when he's looking, I know fish. So anyway, when he's looking at the, at the fish, when he's looking at that bait, he begins to forget all about the safety that he has where he is. He forgets about it. And he begins to move out, and he moves out all the more. And finally, guess what? He forgets all about that safety, and all he can do is act on the compulsion that's within his appetite to be able to feed on that. It's the same way with the trap. If there's a big, huge trap, and it's got these big jaws on it, right? And, you, and, and a bear comes up, and he's not, hey, check that out. That looks pretty awesome. That looks like a collar. I'll put it on. No, he doesn't do that. But you put a big piece of meat on that thing, he forgets all about the danger that rests within and he says, this is exactly what happens with you and I. You and I, the reason that we, we fall to temptation and get the opportunity to do sinful things and do the wrong thing is because there is an appetite within me to sin. And when there's a temptation and it comes along floating by, whatever that is, there's something in me that looks at that, that desires that. And the Bible says that this ends badly, just like the fish just like the animal, it ends badly with us. Now, notice what the Word of God says in the, in, in the next verse. He says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Not all temptation is sin. Temptation itself is not sin. Guys, look, you're looking at something. There's, a, there, there's something on the television. You know you should not be watching it. It's a, the female figure on there, and you know where that's going to ultimately lead. When you see it, you turn away, and you clear your mind. You make a covenant with your eyes. You don't look back, right? What, what is that? Temptation? Yeah, but you passed, you passed a test. You're turning away. There's probably not, listen, there's probably not going to be a time if things are functioning with you normally, your mind and everything else, that there's going to be a time that that may not be attractive to you. So just because you're Lord, and even though there's attractiveness about it, you're, you haven't sinned yet until you go and you act on that sin. Does that make sense? You, don't, you act on it. You see, hey, it, 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 it's, it's all in our culture. It pops up until you act on it. But the Bible says that when you... Here, here's what, let, me, let me give you an illustration of how this works. So you're sitting there, you see something... You're in the safety of your relationship with God. You guys got this? In the safety of God's word. You know God's word. That, that word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against thee. You know the word of God. Then all of a sudden you see something out the outside of that. 
And what you begin to do is you begin to meditate on it and see it more often, and you begin to reflect on it more often, what do you begin to do? You begin to move forward, and you begin to leave the security of the Word of God. And here's what happens. It's not that you begin to hate God. You know what you do? You forget God. Completely forget about God at that moment, don't you? Guys, do you understand what I'm talking about? Ladies, do you understand what I'm talking about? At that moment, you're not thinking about God. You're not thinking about His Word. You're past it, man. And then you take it. And the Bible says once you take it, where does it lead you? It leads to death. It leads to death. Listen, I know some of you are sports fishermen. You're much better fishermen than I am. But listen, I, I don't catch the fish to throw that, that baby back. I, baby back. I, I don't throw it back. What I do is when I catch it, you know, I want to eat it. And plus, I'm prideful because I want to say, look at the big fish I caught, you know, three inches of it, you know. And, and, and I want it because I want to eat it if it's a good fish. The same exact thing with a hunter. Most hunters don't blow Bambi's head off in order for them just to sit there and go, hey, wasn't that fun? All right, I hope not. They're, they're killing in order because they want to take, they, they, want to, they want to trap it. They want to kill it. They want to be able to bring it home. And so what happens is all of these things lead to death, and it's the same thing for us. When there's sin inside of our heart and we're lured away by those temptations that, that our heart gravitates to, it leads to death. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means two things. There's both a vertical death and there's also a horizontal death. Here's the vertical death. It means it speaks of our relationship with God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were the only people who were ever born apart from Christ who were spiritually born, that were created spiritually alive. They were spiritually alive unto God. They could fellowship with God. They could commune with God. They could talk with God. But what ultimately happened is when sin set in, their spirit died within them. They were spiritually became dead within them. They were still alive physically, but they would ultimately meet their physical demise as well. But God, by his grace, of course, would save them. But this is what I want you to understand. Everybody who was born after Adam and Eve at that point, they're not, they don't start off right they are born dead, spiritually dead, which means that they cannot love God, they cannot seek after God, they cannot know what God knows, they can't, they can't follow him. The Bible says no one seeks after God, nobody, right? We are all lost, we are all blind to our sin, we are dead in our trespasses and sin is what the word of God says. And so what happens is because of our sin, we are born in that sin, we continue to act on that sin. And because of those two things, the righteous wrath of God is storing up for us into the final day of judgment. And so what happens is that's a bad situation to ultimately be in. But that's the spiritual death. Sin in God, because he has none of it, he's completely holy, cannot have anything to do with sin or sinners. But here's the thing, it also kills our relationships uh, horizontally. Listen, when there's sin in my life, and listen to this in James 4, he kind of explains this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? She does. That's what causes fights among us. He does. That's what causes fights and wars and everything else. It's because he won't do what I told him to do. She won't do what I told her to do. She's got a problem. She's got an attitude. That's why I had to go ballistic all over her, right, and tell her what was up. Right? So these are, are these, do these sound familiar, these kind of conversations? Why are you so upset? Why are you losing it? Why are you losing control? Because of her. She causes me. She drives me crazy. And here's we are. Here's what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. He says, your problem is not so much on what's outside of you. Your problem is what's inside of you. 
Your lust is not being met, and therefore it, it, it leads you to the point that you begin to act frustrated and fight because of that sin. But it's your own sin that dwells within you. Listen, sin in this type of thing does not bode well in your relationship. You know, there are a lot of folks who are here, and there's not a person that I met that have ever had a marriage problem or been in a marriage that ever thought that the problem in the marriage was them. What does that sound like? There's all kinds of problems, but it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And I'm telling you, when you say to your wife, and you, men, when you go home from work and you've had a long day, and you blow up at your family, you blow up at your kids, and you blow up at your wife, and I blow up at my kids and wife, let me tell you something. It's not because of my kids and wife. And it's not because of a hard day at work or anything else. It's because there's sin that rests within me. There's an ogre that rests within. And when I get the opportunity to grasp power, I grasp power. And guess what that does? It kills my relationships. I've never been, I've I've done a lot of marriage counseling and couples counseling, but I've never said this to somebody. They said, how can we grow closer together? Man, just tell her she's ugly every day. Tell him he's a big fat mooch and you should have never married him. Tell that that's just going to bring you together in a close-knit community within your home. Why? Because sin drives apart. Sin drives us apart, not drives us together. So it's a relationship killer. So the question then is, what do we do with all this? Well, I believe that it's two things. Number one, maybe you don't know Christ. And what I mean by that is, you believe in Jesus. You know, you you celebrate Christmas. You might even put out baby Jesus in the crib. You like the American flag. You like America, God, country, apple pie, mom. You love all those kinds of things. But here's what you've never really recognized. You've recognized that you cannot have a relationship apart from the person of Jesus Christ. That that wrath that we talked about in the beginning when our relationship with God is dead, we were born that way. Here's why. Because God has to judge sin. He has to judge it. He has to punish it. Why? Because he, just as a good judge, he has to do what is right. To do what is right is to judge sin. And so here's, here, here's the thing. If you continue in your sin and continue the way that you are, one day that wrath is going to fall on you for all eternity. But because God is not only just, but he is loving, he provided a way of escape. And that way of escape is his only son, his only begotten son, whom he sent to this earth. And what he did was he didn't say, hey, I'm going to change the rules. You just don't have to be beaten anymore. What he did was he said, I'm going to give you a substitute, my son Jesus, so that you don't have to be beaten and you don't have to be put in the ground. I'm going to take all my wrath and I'm going to pour it out on my own son on the cross. So for everyone who believes Christ died for their sins on that cross at that time. And what happens is because it pours out on them, the Bible says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You say, how does this work? This is the first way it works. The first thing you do is you take ownership for your sin. Up until this point, you've always been a victim. It's always been everybody else that has been doing everything wrong. That's what's been driving you to do the wrong thing. But here's the thing. You've got to come to the point. Listen to me. I just talked with a gentleman this morning. I said, you've got to come to the point where you feel the weight of your own sin. I began to share a testimony of a young man that I heard who cried out to God when he was, when he was asking Christ to give him. He says, it should have been me. It should have been me on that cross. I was sharing with that. And he goes, whoa. And I said, what? He goes, man, that's a little bit too much to handle that it should have been me on the cross. And I said, brother, if you can't come to realize that it should have been you on that cross while the wrath of God poured out, you can have nothing to do with Jesus. You have to come to the point and you say, man, it should have been me on that cross and the wrath of God should have poured out. Jesus will never look sweet until you see the bitterness of your sin. 
And so what you have to do is you have to take recognition for that. And then what do you do? You place your faith in Christ. You say, God, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to earn. I've tried to be good. I can't be good. I'm frustrated with this trying to do a good thing. Instead, what I need is I realize I cannot be the person I can be. I need you, by your grace, giving me what I don't deserve. Will you forgive me? Will you be my Savior? Will you be my Lord? I'm turning from my sin. I'm placing my faith in you. I'm yours, Jesus. You bought me with your shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that really the truth of the matter is people say, well, then you're saved. No, God saved you before that point in order for you to say those things because you were dead and he had, to, he had to illuminate your mind. He had to illuminate your heart. He brought you to that point of faith and that's why we celebrate and that's why he gets the glory. Now, what about believers? How does this apply to believers? Because some of you are saying, well, I'm already saved. Just don't jump there too quick. Everybody who comes to church always jumps really so quickly going, well, listen, get to the, I'm not, a, I'm not an unbeliever. How do you know? I know a lot of unbelievers right now are believers, quote believers, man, they don't follow Jesus, they don't read his word, they don't spend time in the word, they don't serve, they don't use their gift for the edification of the church. They're not growing in Christ. They're not doing any of those things. I'm a believer, why? I prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, signed a card, got baptized, I'm a believer. Read 1 John, read the book of James all the way through. Those who are truly born again produce fruit which is consistent with true salvation. Those people who are changed by God are those who are saved and show evidence of it. So you say, what do you do? Say, we do get over here. And you said, listen, I've been, I'm not perfect, but what do I do? Here you go, same thing. Take ownership, man. Quit blaming everybody else. It's not because you had a bad day. It's because of your sin. It's not because your mommy and daddy didn't give you the appropriate healthy relationship growing up is why you can't have appropriate relationship now. It's not because you went off to war and, and a bomb blew up next to you and now you can't, you, can't, you can't have an intimate relationship with a wife. I'm telling you here, if things are not right, it's because of a much deeper problem. It's a sin problem. And that is what has to be done. So what do we do? We take it to the one who can heal us. We take it to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can bring it. Now, let, now let me give you a couple other things real quick. First of all, take ownership. Secondly, look, oh, look for a way of escape that he has provided and take it. First, uh, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here it is. You listen to me. You know exactly, if you're a believer, you know exactly what he's talking about. The opportunity of escape. You know it, don't you? And your gut, all of a sudden, something you shouldn't be watching, you know the presence of the Holy Spirit. Turn, turn it off. Walk away, run. You're about to argue with your spouse. You know right at that moment inside of you, it says what? Leave it alone. Don't do it. Don't go there. God says, in my grace, I'm giving you a way out in the Holy Spirit to give you the power to do what I told you to do. Listen to it. Take it. Don't play with the worm. <laughs> Don't you can play with it. Huh? It's so pretty. No, get out of there. Stay away from it. Back up into what? Into the safety of God's word. That's the third thing. Take ownership. Look away. Look, uh, look for a way of escape then, that God has provided. Then take it. Here's the third thing. Live by faith. I love Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. In other words, I don't live by what my flesh tells me to do anymore. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. And the way I know how he wants me to act and respond and to live and to think is through the word of God. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We thank you and we praise you for today. God, I pray that this morning that people will take responsibility. Marriages depend on it. People taking responsibility. Calling out to you. Getting saved. Becoming right. And and, and continuing to entrust you. God, it's not because we walk long hours. It's not because of the dysfunctional home we went in. It's because there's sin inside of us and there's only one person to go to for that, and that's you. Jesus, if there are there, those who are here who do not know you as Savior, God, I pray that they would come and I could talk with them. We could share more of the gospel, counsel with them. If anyone want to be saved, let them come. God, if there are any here this morning, God, who are sitting and just going, man, my life is a mess. God, would they sit there and say a majority of their mess is their own mess? The cause of the wars amongst them is their own desire of getting what they want. And there's a sin and a lust within their heart that they keep causing them to fall to these temptations. God, minister to them. Let them take ownership of it and rely on you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Would you stand this morning? And uh, I'm going to be down here. If you want to respond, you want to pray, you want to talk, or the altar is open, just come. But do business with God this morning, all right?